We're in the second chapter, Fire, Heat and Coolness, speaking about uh, the uh, fire and uh, heat imagery and coolness and light imagery of uh, Nibbana. Here are some more examples of the usage of fire symbolism, both by the Buddha and a number of his disciples, as found in the Pali scriptures. So this first passage is from the Ittivuttaka, <coughs> which means, thus it was said. So the Ittivuttaka is um, the only collection of teachings in the Pali Canon that were given by a layperson. So this was um, a woman called Kujutara, and she was as a, um, a slave in the household of Queen Samavati in Kosambi. And uh, the king Udena, who was um, the, bo- the boss... <laughs> He had a slightly ambivalent relationship to the Buddha, so sometimes he had great faith in the Buddha's teachings, and sometimes he didn't. And sometimes he was very pleased for his household to go and receive teachings, and sometimes he wasn't. And uh, so anyway, at a certain point, he banned uh, Queen Samavati and the other women of his household from going to to visit the Buddha and listen to his teachings. So uh, Samavati um, then um, asked Kujutara, one of her, her servant women, kind of a slave in the royal household, to go and listen to the teachings. And Kujutara had a brilliant mind. She had a very, very good memory. And because she was a slave, she was also she had a, a kind of deformed back, so she was kind of um, looked down upon or sort of the, the kind of lowest of the low. So she was completely under the radar. So, <laughs> so she got to go and listen to the Buddha, where all the kind of high ladies of the court couldn't go. So. So Kujutara, and then she was um, uh, praised by the Buddha as one who remembered the teachings most uh, comprehensively, and she's the only uh, layperson in the whole Pali Canon who has a whole collection of teachings uh, in her voice. So having been at the bottom of the heap, she ended up being uh, one of the most uh, eminent voices of the of Dhamma over the uh, over the centuries. So it's uh, one of those ironic and beautiful. Uh, little attributes of the Pali Canon. So the Itivuttaka is a collection. So she came, she'd go and listen to the Buddha, and then she'd come back to the palace, and she'd recount the Buddha's teachings to, the, to Queen Samavati and the other uh, women in the royal harem. And so it, there, there's a slightly, there's a sort of succinct nature, there's a kind of um, summarized nature uh, of the, uh, the teachings in the Itivuttaka, but they cover quite a range of different subjects. And... Um, so there's a, uh, <clears throat> it's a it's not a huge book of teachings, but uh, there's a lot of very uh, pithy and essential uh, themes in there. So <clears throat> this was was said by the Lord. So iti uh, wutaka iti means this. All of the suttas in iti wutaka be, be, uh, begin with iti, <laughs> um, and then the. Um, uh, the vuttaka means this was said, uh, so uh, uh, so that the um, uh, the whole collection is sort of thus it was said, and it also they so they begin with iti and they finish with this was said by the by the blessed one. So it's kind of the first words and the last word of each of each sutta it gives the title for the whole collection. Bhikkhus, there are these three fires. What three? The fire of passion, the fire of hate, the fire of delusion. These bhikkhus are the three fires. The fire of lust burns mortals, drunk on sensual pleasure. The fire of hate burns the malevolent, who kill other living beings. 
Delusion burns the bewildered, unaware of the noble Dhamma. Unaware of these three fires, they delight in self-identification. Unfree from the bonds of Mara, they swell the ranks of hell, the hordes of the animal realm, the asuras and the ghosts. But those sincerely practicing the Dhamma day and night consider the body's ugliness and quell the fires of lust. Those noble ones, through kindness, put out the fire of hate and snuff delusion's fire by wisdom leading to penetration. Having quenched these fires, those wise ones, tireless night and day, attain final nibbana and comprehend the realm of pain. These noble seers, the masters, wise ones who truly know, indeed have seen the end of birth. No more becoming will they experience. So for each of those, those three, then uh, in this particular teaching, then uh, uh, she recounts the, the Buddha's treatments of, uh, for lust, the uh, reflections on the unattractiveness of the body, uh, consider the body's ugliness and quell the fire of lust, then uh, in terms of uh, hatred, the uh, advice is through kindness put out the fire of hate, and then snuff delusion's fire by wisdom leading to penetration. So that uh, <clears throat> the um, the image there is say the same as the fires of the uh, the fire sermon raga dosa and moha, and then these but it, it spells out the particular so, so approaches or treatments for each one of those those three in the in the fire sermon you'll remember yesterday it just says seeing thus a one pasang that's the the treatment for for the the whole array <laughs> so this one goes into a little bit more. More, more detail as how to work with each of the, the three. This next passage involves our first encounter in these pages with Vachagota, a character whose persistent inquiries gave rise to some of the Buddha's most memorable teachings. So, uh, I, there's actually a r- there's room for a whole sort of Vachagota book, <laughs> if not a whole uh, sort of the life of Vachagota, because he was a, a wanderer. Uh, so he was not a, a disciple of the Buddha originally, but he was a wanderer from a, a different um, ascetic group. But he would come along and listen to the Buddha's teachings, and uh, and he had a lot of questions, <laughs> and uh, was was very persistent. And so many of the, the Buddha's teachings are, uh, are revolve around inquiries of Vachagota, and so. Um, it starts off with him being filled with doubts or kind of challenging the Buddha, not, you know, not um, going along with what the Buddha says. And then slowly, over time, if you sort of put them all together in a, in a, a uh, logical or sort of time sequence, slowly he, faith arises and he becomes more and more uh, devoted to the Buddha. And then he becomes a, a bhikkhu with the Buddha and eventually becomes an arahant. So uh, he, uh, Vachagota is a sort of persistent inquirer. And uh, we are the beneficiaries of many of his uh, his dialogues. So this first encounter with Vachagota is uh, from the Sangyutta Nikaya. The Samana Gotama declares the rebirth of a disciple who has passed away and died thus. That one was reborn here. That one was reborn there. But in the case of a disciple who was a person of the highest kind, a supreme person, one who has attained the supreme attainment, when that disciple has passed away and died, he does not declare the rebirth thus, that one was reborn here, that one was reborn there. 
Rather, he declares of them, they cut off craving, severed the fetter, and, by completely breaking through conceit, they have made an end of suffering. There was perplexity in me, Master Gotama. There was doubt. How is the Dhamma of the Samana Gotama to be understood here? So this is, uh, so Vajagot has come to the Buddha and he said, so I've heard it said, so when you, when you talk about someone who isn't liberated, that they went after the, they passed away, then they're reborn in this realm or that realm, they come back to the human realm or they've been reborn in the Tavatinsa heaven and so forth. But when someone is an Arahant and they passed away, you don't say that. Uh, you don't say that. Rather, as he says, uh, what you say of them is they've cut off craving, severed the fetter, and by completely breaking through conceit, they have made an end of suffering. So, and then conceit in that um, that respect, uh, probably most people are familiar with. But the the word conceit in Pali is mana. So the English usage of the word conceit is to say, well, I said Ajahn Jitapala is really conceited. You don't mind me using you as an example, Ajahn. Ajahn Jitapala is really conceited. That would mean that she thinks she's something something really special, that she's better than everybody else. And she sort of looks down, on, at least on, uh, on all the other nuns, and uh, almost certainly on all the monks as well. <laughs> Definitely looking down on all the lay people. <laughs> looks down her nose. At, uh, so, uh, so that's the English usage of the word conceit. But in the Pali, mana is much broader. And it's, it's, uh, so even if she thought she was worse than everybody, She's worse than all the nuns, worse than all the monks, and worse definitely than all the lay people. That would still be conceit in terms of the Pali, is a mana. So there's a, what they call the ninefold conceit. You can stay with this. So if you are better than, uh, if you are the best and you think you're the best, if you are the best and you think you're the same as, if you are the best and you think you're worse than, that's the, the first three types of conceit. If you are, medi- if you are me- uh, mediocre, but you think you're the best, if you are mediocre and you think you're mediocre, if you are mediocre and you think you're the worst, that's the second three types of conceit. And if you're the worst and you think you're the best, if you're the worst and you think you're mediocre, and if you're worst and you think you're the worst, that's the last three types of conceit. This is a ninefold conceit. So even if it's accurate, you, you, know, you, you are the worst and you think I am the worst, that's, that's still a kind of conceit. So it doesn't matter whether it's accurate in terms of... of um, uh, evidence or worldly judgments, but uh, the I am element, that's the conceiving. The, it's the I is being conceived, is being sort of formed. So uh, <coughs> that word, uh, the, the verb is manyati, so the conceiving. And so that uh, um, breaking through conceit is any kind of I-making and mind-making, any kind of I am that is, is formed, whether it's judging as uh, better than, same as, or worse than, or regardless of whether it's accurate or not. And then the Buddha responds in his characteristically wise and balanced way, It is fitting for you to be perplexed, Vacha. It is fitting for you to doubt. Doubt has arisen in you about a perplexing matter. So, uh, yes, it's, this is <laughs> it is perplexing. That's why you're in doubt. It is, uh, it's, it's reasonable for you to be uh, confused because it's confusing. I declare, Vacha, rebirth for one fueled by clinging, not for one unfueled by clinging. Just as a fire burns with fuel, but not without fuel, so, Vacha, I declare rebirth for one with fuel, not for one without fuel. And the Pali for that is Sa Upadana Sa Kvahang Vacha, 
upapating panyapemi no anupadasana. Sorry, anupadanasa. There is a deliberate double meaning here, with upadana meaning both fuel and subjective clinging. But, Master Gotama, when a flame is flung by the wind and goes a far distance, what do you say its fuel is on that occasion? Bacho, when a flame is flung by the wind and goes a far distance, I say that it is fueled by the wind. The wind, Bacha, is its fuel on that occasion. And Master Gotama, when a being has laid down this body and has not yet been reborn in another body, what does Master Gotama say is the fuel on that occasion? Bacha, when a being has laid down this body and has not yet been reborn in another body, I say that craving is the fuel. Craving, Bacha, is the fuel at that time. And the Pali for that is tam ahang tanupadanang vadami. Tanha, craving, upadanang, craving is the fuel. So this is a very significant little sutta. And people often ask about um, rebirth and uh, also people have strong views about whether the Buddha taught about past lives, future lives. And so it's quite common for um, modern uh, so, uh, people in the West in modern times to um, be very skeptical about uh, teachings on rebirth and say, well, the Buddha never really taught that or he meant it just you know, symbolically. <laughs> But this is a very clear instance where the Buddha is talking about yeah, a life has come to an end and another life hasn't begun and there is something that is connecting one life with another. And so what tends to happen uh, is that when people who are very uh, adamant about uh, not liking the idea of rebirth, they just say, well, this, it, this wasn't the word of the Buddha. You know, the, this is interpolated, this was introduced later on. <laughs> you can tell, but often uh, my suspicion is that you can only tell because they want, they want it to be that way. It's like, he can't have said that because I don't want him to have said that. That makes sense? So, but to me, this is a really clear instance uh, where the Buddha is talking about that whole process. And then uh, also, when people ask me, uh, so um, what gets reborn, uh, if, uh, if, there's an, if all Dhammas are not self, what is it that gets reborn? The, the way that I, I summarize this, um, and I often quote this sutta, as a, as a source, but the way I summarize it is saying what gets reborn is habits. Good habits, bad habits, or just familiarity. And uh, <coughs> that, that, so that tanha, that craving, it can not just be liking, it's, it doesn't just mean wanting something, that can also be uh, um, disliking something. So be very, very cautious of that thought that says never again, because that's a bond. <laughs> Okay, it's the last time. That's the last time I'm going to work with him. Like, oh, you know, you can see it coming. Like, <laughs> it's like the handcuffs are clanked on. Like, that you you create a aversion creates as much of a bond as liking. And there's another sutta where the uh, I think it's the Panchataya Sutta, uh, which is a hundred and two in the Majjhima Nikaya, where the Buddha says he, he gives this image of like a a, do- a dog on a chain tied to a post. Whether the dog goes around clockwise or anti-clockwise, uh, it, uh, it still remains tied to the post. So whether the mind is tied by attraction or aversion, it's still tied to, uh, to the object. It doesn't really matter which direction it's going around, sunwise or, 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 or uh, clockwise or anti-clockwise. Um, so uh, this, I feel, is a very 
helpful image. So like when a, in a forest fire, when a, when a flame jumps from one tree to another, it's fueled, as he says, by the wind, by the you know, oxygen, by the air. That's what, that's what the flame feeds on as it jumps from one, uh, one tree to another. Um, and uh, in jumping from one life to another, then uh, what is fueling, what, what's fueling that connection is, uh, is that uh, is tanha, is the craving, is the fuel. And it also it doesn't have to be liking or disliking, also just the familiarity. So the very fact that the mind is, is familiar with a particular landscape or a, a, um, a particular uh, uh, living situation or a, a house, you know, that the mind can gravitate to things just because it's familiar. Uh, and in, in the illustration of this, there's a very wonderful little book about, about rebirth called The Mountains of Tibet. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a, a sort of kid's picture book. It's like, like a kid's book about rebirth. Um, and um, it's uh, uh, a, a, a very good way of illustrating how this, this operates. And it starts off with, um, once upon a time there was a little boy called Tenzin who lived in the mountains of Tibet and he liked to, he liked to go onto the, the hillside and fly his kite. And you think, okay, story's beginning. And then you turn the page, and Tenzin got very old and passed away. <laughs> so rather like that, that film up, you know, you get the the uh, the 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 little the little, two little kids playing at the beginning, and then the next thing they're they're kind of tottering around, and, and the, the the wife has died, and the husband is is grieving her. Like, oh, that was quick. <laughs> so in the same way, then it describes how that this uh, Tenzin is lies there on his deathbed, and then the consciousness then leaves the 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 body, and then. Uh, uh, arrives in this kind of very spacious s- state, and then this voice, either from inside or from outside, says, uh, "So uh, your life has come to an end. Now you have a choice. You can either merge with the the infinite light of reality, or you can uh, you can take up another birth. What, what do you want to do?" Said, well, ah, I'm not I'm not sure, but uh, um, what, you know, what what are the options in terms of, of a birth? And they say, well, there are many, 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 many. And they have this picture of the whole sort of Milky Way. It says, well, I kind of like that. That sort of area about three quarters of the way out on the, in that big spiral. I, that, that looks interesting. And oh, look, there's this big burning uh, sun and then these, these different planets uh, running around it. And oh, my God, I kind of like that blue-green one, the third one out. That looks interesting. And then... And then it sees all these different landscapes, the deserts and forests and mountains. And, oh, that, that place, the, the lumpy white bits, that looks kind of nice. And, and then <clears throat> goes through uh, this, this is just the short version of it. And then you turn the last page and it says, once upon a time there was a little girl called Dolma and she liked to walk on the hillside and fly her kite. You know? <laughs> and, <laughs> and how you know, each way along it's like, oh, well, that kind of looks nice. That looks interesting. Oh, yeah. And then how we get drawn. It's rather like when you're traveling, if you're, if you're any of you, who, well, there's a lot of people who are not British here, so when you're traveling, say you are Russian, Virginia, okay, and you're in a cafe in San Francisco, and you hear someone speaking Russian over there. You, you know, oh, and suddenly you're interested to go, oh, <laughs> I wonder if that's a kind of accent from my hometown, you know, and you get drawn that voice. So certainly when I was traveling in, in Asia, I would hear an English voice, of, you know, and then the, the attention goes there, and all the rest of the voices around the cafe suddenly go into the background, and then, oh, I wonder who that is. So that's rebirth. <laughs>
So before we go on to the next reading, any uh, questions or comments, reflections on that? Yes, Suti sir. Well, in uh, the, there's two dimensions to that, really. So, fear is also a kind of bond if the mind attaches to it. So, what you're afraid of, the mind gets gets tied to it. It's just as like if we love something or hate something, fear can be just as much of a bond. So that the thing that you're afraid of is what the mind gets gets tied to. Like anything but that. <laughs> I don't care what happens. Anything but that is like, oh man, you shouldn't have thought that. <laughs> But so, that, but also, fear is is misunderstood. It's like pain. Fear is a kind of emotional pain, and we experience fear because the ancestors that we had that weren't afraid got eaten, or they fell off the cliff. They didn't have children. The ones that were afraid had the children and and raised them and had a successful family. So fear is one of Mother Nature's ways of keeping us alive. It's a useful, it's a painful feeling, but it's a useful feeling. <clears throat> so, um, it's a bad idea to think of fear as some kind of emotional problem. When the mind grasps it and gets invested in it, then it, and it overspills its boundaries, then it becomes a neurotic habit. But on its own, fear is really useful. If you think about it, you know, those ancestors of ours who weren't afraid, they're the ones who fell off the cliff. They fell out of the tree. They climbed too high to get that last fruit on the tree and they dropped. They were the ones who, when they heard that rustling in the bushes, said, ah, can't be a tiger. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be a wimp. <laughs> and then you're tiger food. You know. So the ones who said, I don't know. I think I'm gonna just uh, <coughs> go for the <laughs> the the, uh, the shelter by the fire, and, uh, so that they're the ones who survived. So fear is uh, is not a defilement. If it's grasped and identified with it, turns into uh, a, kind of, a, a painful attachment. But so an arahant can experience fear, and. Uh, but it's uh, but as soon as a dangerous situation is is gone, then the fear goes. It's like uh, I've often told that story that uh, Jack Cornfield recounted of going in this um, a, a car ride with Lumpur Cha. They, they had uh, some little festival down near the Cambodian border. It's quite a hilly area. Now most of the Isan is very flat, as you know, but down near the the, the border with uh, Cambodia is quite hilly. And when Jack Cornfield was a monk with Ajahn Chah, he was. Um, they were taken in this, this little pickup truck to go to this festival down at this branch monastery near the Khmer border. And, uh, and, uh, and Jack was convinced this driver had a death wish because he was going from all these hairpin bends without slowing down and going on the wrong side of the road. And, and so Jack was sitting there thinking, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. <laughs> and, and he kind of looks over to see what Ajahn Chah is, you know, how he's handling this because it was really hairy. Uh, and he saw that uh, Ajahn Charles was holding onto the seat. <laughs> but uh, you know, his, his skin was not white, but his knuckles were. <laughs> but then they got to the end, and, and uh, Ajahn Chah just turned to him and said, Scary ride, huh? 
and that was it. You know, it's, you know, it wasn't like he didn't feel fear, but it's like when the danger goes, then the fear goes. It's not a, it's not a problem. So there's a big difference, and, and we, we can, uh, because we've got a thinking mind that can remember and can imagine, then our fear very commonly and, and naturally overspills its boundaries. We imagine what's going to happen. We remember what happened and we, we get afraid of things that have already gone by because of remembering a painful incident. We can recreate it in our memories. So the thinking mind in that instance becomes um, a fuel <laughs> for, for suffering. It, it fuels that. There's a, a, a book I often recommend called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers by Robert Sapolsky. Highly recommended reading. We hopefully Why Zebras... There's black and white striped horses in Africa. Why zebras don't get ulcers, but humans do. And zebras don't get if you If you've seen those wildlife programs, you see that like zebras or wildebeests, you know, grazing in the savannah in Africa. And you've got a lion, kind of, or a group of lions sort of hunting. And they're, they're kind of, yeah, the, the zebras are sort of grazing away and having a, a good time. And then a lion kind of zooms out and then chases after one zebra and jumps on it. And the others are still kind of <laughs> carrying on with their lunch, you know. And they don't seem to be bothered. And the, the point that, that Robert Sapolsky makes is that, that the, the zebras, they, they, uh, <coughs> they, they need to have a, a stress reaction for a very short period of time. So if you know that lion is chasing you, you run. And one of two things will happen. Either you get away, or you don't. If you get away, then you know, when you're running, you need to, to get your heart beating really strongly, you need to have maximum adrenaline, all your digestive functions shut down, your reproductive functions shut down, you need maximum sugar into the, the blood to get those muscles going. You need a stress reaction to get you away from the danger. If you get away, fine, then the stress reaction drops and you carry on with your lunch. If you don't get away, then you're dead. So um, either way, that stress reaction isn't sustained for anything longer than the emergency period. So zebras don't get ulcers. We get ulcers because we can think, um, oh dear, that's you know, the lion's after Sutisa, you know. <laughs> yeah, because we imagine, it's like, because uh, we're not zebras, so we think, oh dear, you know, it's going after Sutisa, maybe tomorrow it'll be me. Oh no. And now, uh, well, it didn't get me. It didn't get me the next day. But he went. He went after Sister Tisara. She's gone. Maybe I'm. Maybe I'm next. <laughs> and so we, we imagine who's who's next. But the zebras don't seem to do that. So anyway, I I highly recommend this. Why zebras don't get ulcers? <laughs> no, it, it can be this life because we. That's the thing. Once we see that the the thinking mind is is feeding that, then we can get a perspective on it. And that uh, it's because it just sort of runs away with our... Uh, and it sustains those stress reactions for days, weeks, months. Then the body is in this, this stressed state, even though there's no danger. It imagines danger. But fear on its own, it's... I remember years ago, when I had a, a kind of insight into this, I was staying in the forest at Chithurst. It was my tenth rains. There was only one kuti in the forest in those days, and you used to 
It was your, your, your big bonus was to go and spend three months in the forest at Chidhurst after your tenth vasa. So I was, uh, and I, I used to go to the edge of the forest, and there was this, this five-bar gate on the, the eastern border of the forest. And so early in the morning, I used to go and, and sit out there and watch the sun coming up, watch the dawn and the sun coming up. And so there was this open field uh, on the other side of the, the gate. So I was sitting on top of the gate <coughs> and watching these deer uh, grazing in the field. And think, oh, beautiful, misty early morning, and the sun kind of just filling the light with uh, filling the sky with light. Beautiful deer, sort of peacefully grazing, and then I sneezed, and then the deer kind of, <laughs> and, the, and so then uh, being a bit sort of sentimental, oh, poor things, so driven by fear and and uh, <coughs> so uh, so so worried. And then this, this sort of voice of wisdom said, idiot. <laughs> the, the deer, they got big eyes and big ears because that's how they protect themselves. You know, as a loud noise nearby, that can easily be a two-legged with a gun. So that a loud noise of a human nature means, oh, go. <laughs> and that, uh, that is how they protect themselves. They're herbivores. Uh, they they have big eyes, big ears, and they they're alert because they need to they need to get away, and so rather than and so it was really it was kind of interesting because it sort of snuck up on me from behind, the, the insight <laughs> that there's this sort of oh poor things you know that they feel so afraid, but rather they think, no that's how they survive. That's that's not that's that's not a problem for them. That's it's a painful emotion. But that the pain protects, like physical pain stops us from damaging our body. Like if you're you're working in the kitchen, you're doing the washing up, and you, the the water come out of the tap come, comes out really really hot. The the fact that you go ow, you pull your hand out of it, that protects your hand. If you if you if you didn't, and it says oh this is really hot, this is probably damaging my skin. Oh never mind, I've got this pot to wash. <laughs> And you're you're burning your skin under the under the the, the hot water, right? The skin gets damaged. Your body gets uh, gets heavily compromised. Uh, but but it's the pain that makes that not happen. The pain says, "Ow, quick, run it under the run it under cold water, and it won't get a scald. Otherwise, you can have you know, blisters and skin falling off and injuries and so on. So pain is a protector. It's not a it's not a defilement." And uh, if you sort of tease those things apart, so that it's, then you, because I've, I've contemplated fear a lot, and, it, uh, <clears throat> and so you realize that it's useful that it's uncomfortable. <laughs> that's how it works. Like, that's how pain works. It's supposed to be horrible. So you get away from the thing that's causing it, and that protects the system. So in that way, it's, it's a mistake to think that all kinds of fear or pain are, are, are a, a problem or an obstacle. Rather, it's the mind's relationship to them. Okay, so to continue. So the next one is uh, the Arahant Nan Sumeta. This is her verses from the Teri Gata. When the deathless exists, why court sense pleasures like burning fevers? Every sensual delight is on fire, ablaze, seething. 
When a firebrand in your hand is alight, let go and you won't get burned. Sensuality is that firebrand. Those who don't let go get burned. So a firebrand is like a, if you have a bundle of grass or sticks, it's like a, that's it's on fire. It's not like a torch, electric torch. It's like a burning bundle of, um, of grass or, or, or wood in your hand. So if you hold it for a, a little time, then you won't get burned. But if you keep holding it, then it's going to burn down and your hand will, will be burned. <coughs> and so this next passage is from the Sangyutta. Suppose, bhikkhus, a person would drop a blazing grass torch into a thicket of dry grass. If that individual does not quickly extinguish it with their hands and feet, the creatures living in the grass and the wood will meet with calamity and disaster. So too, if any summoner or brahmin does not quickly abandon, dispel, obliterate and extinguish the unwholesome perceptions that have arisen in them, they dwell in suffering in this very life with vexation, despair and fever. And with the breakup of the body after death, a bad destination may be expected for them. Suppose because a person would drop a blazing grass torch into a thicket of dry grass, if that individual quickly extinguishes, with, quickly extinguishes it with their hands and feet, the creatures living in the grass and wood would not meet with calamity and disaster. So too, if any summoner or brahmin quickly abandons, dispels, obliterates and extinguishes the unwholesome perceptions that have arisen in them, they dwell happily in this very life, without vexation, despair and fever. And with the breakup of the body after death, a good destination may be expected for them. This relates to uh, the aspect of right effort. Um, the second one, the letting go of unwholesome states that, that have arisen, the pahanati. So, sangvara is the restraining unwholesome states from arising. But then, if they have arisen already, then uh, pahana is the letting go of them. So, this is is uh, relating to that. So. Uh, <coughs> And again, using the same kind of imagery that you have in the fire sermon of sort of the the, the mind um, grasping, um, if it grasps hold of uh, raga, dosa, moha, passion and uh, aversion and delusion, then if it if that grasping carries on, then you get vexation and uh, and um, despair and fever and so on. Uh, but if they are quickly let go of, just like if uh, if you drop a a, a match into the dry grass, then if you quickly stamp it out, then uh, the the fire doesn't doesn't get going, and so then that uh, saves the, the creatures who are living in in the grass, and uh, <coughs> and so in a way restrains that potential for for disaster from from happening. So then, <coughs> this chapter closes with a collection of verses from some of the elder nuns and monks of the Buddha's time. We start with expressions of the coarse end of the fire analogy, the flames of passion, and conclude with the most refined, going out of a flame as symbolic of utter release, the heart's true and joyful liberation. The transformation of all mental heat and flame into the pure light of Dhamma, and equally into the coolness of Nibbana. So the first one, these are verses from the Teragata and Terigata. So the first one is Vangisa. So it starts off with Vangisa before his enlightenment. Vangisa. I burn with lust 
my mind on fire. Please, Master Gotama, show compassion. How do I put it out? Warped perceptions are what keep your mind on fire. See through the glamour igniting lust. See all compounded things as other, unappealing, not self. Let your mountainous lust be cooled of the endless burning. And so in that, um, the see through the, the glamour igniting lust. So the glamour is uh, in, in uh, ancient myths, stories, in mythology, that a glamour is a kind of mask or a, uh, an appearance. So that um, it doesn't just mean glamour as in um, wearing makeup um, and or, or a sort of expensive suits and dresses and such like, um, but a glamour is like a, a kind of magical appearance. So, say for example, in the story of of um, Odysseus going back from the Trojan War, when he arrived back in Ithaca, uh, Athene, the goddess Athene, was his protector, and so. Uh, he wanted to arrive in secret and not be recognized in his home, on his home island in Ithaca. And so she put a glamour on him so that uh, he wouldn't, people who saw him wouldn't recognize that he was Odysseus, that he would uh, appear as somebody else. And so that, uh, that uh, it's a very uh, let's say, appropriate uh, term for the way that both lust and then also aversion and um, you know, the habits of... Of a, of a conditioned mind that they, they put a glamour on things that they, they see something as attractive or, or horrible and it's a, a, a kind of veneer we see what the mind projects onto, uh, onto another person or onto another thing and, and calls it valuable or calls it awful or calls them attractive or unattractive so that that seeing through that glamour seeing through that, that veneer or that layer of, of projection um, is the, the way of um, say liberating the heart from that as, his, as he says see all compounded things as other as unappealing, as not self then uh, Sumedha again this is from the uh, Terry guitar there is this beyond aging this beyond death this the unaging undying state this free from grieving, from all animosity, unobstructed, unhindered, free from all fear, not burning. So that, uh, that uh, is, uh, again, sort of echoes the, the um, all is burning theme from the, the fire sermon, that uh, the, she's speaking about the realization of Dhamma, that, that state of uh, uh, the mind awakening to its own nature. This beyond aging, beyond death, undying, unaging, free from grieving, from, from animosity, from aversion or negativity, unobstructed, unhindered, so limitless, unbounded, and free from all fear, uh, not burning. So the, the, the quality of burning is sort of associated with all of those um, mental uh, reactions. And then uh, this is in the Sutta Nipata, the Buddha speaking to Hemaka. When there is the dispelling of passion and desire for things that are cherished, pleasant sights and sounds, thoughts and feelings, the deathless state, Nibbana, appears. Mindful in the here and now, those who know this are forever calmed. They have crossed over beyond the world. 
and then Patachara. So Patachara was one of the most uh, famous of the enlightened nuns. She had um, experienced the death of her husband and her children, and uh, through the, the loss of her, her family, then she was uh, deeply grief-stricken, and then came to be uh, become a disciple of the Buddha. And uh, so this is the description of her own uh, liberation. So it starts off with her, her, kind of her internal thoughts, reflecting on why she hasn't uh, realized enlightenment yet. When they plow their lands and sow the earth with seed, nourishing wives and children, the lay folk gain rewards. I've cultivated virtue well, followed my teacher's rule. I'm not proud or lazy. Why haven't I found Nibbana? So she's sort of describing that. These kind of common thoughts in the minds of monks and nuns. <laughs> I'm doing everything I'm supposed to. I'm trying really hard. How come? Yeah, how come I haven't uh, reached the goal yet? So she's sort of recounting that that train of thought in her mind, and then it, it's uh, the 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 scene sounds as though she was she had been doing walking meditation, and this these thoughts were passing through her mind, and then she's she's finished the walking meditation, and she's. Um, uh, then w- uh, washing her feet before she goes into her, her kuti to sit down. She, then she says, Washing my feet, I watched the water flowing from high to low. My mind was concentrated, reined in like a noble stallion. Then taking up a lamp and entering my hut, I checked the bedding, sat down on the bed. Lifting a needle, I doused the burning wick with it. Like the departing flame, the heart was then released. So her liberation came literally with the putting out of a candle. <laughs> so uh, <coughs> the um, uh, this is a you know a, f- a familiar scene, sort of uh, finishing the meditation, doing walking meditation, going into your hut, checking the bedding. I imagine is for centipedes and <laughs> snakes and scorpions and such like. If you're going to sit down on a on a, uh, a surface, you check what you're sitting on often in Asia it can be uh, uh, dangerous to, to, to not be aware of what you're sitting on and then there's uh, it sounds like there was a candle burning in the, um, in the kuti and she takes a, a needle a little um, pin and puts the, the, the candle out with that and then when the, the, the light went out that was when the, she had the experience of complete liberation so that uh, <clears throat> that is um, so one of the instances where the nibbana, the going out of a flame or the, the extinguishing of a fire, you know, actually, <laughs> and maybe it was that association that that uh, helped trigger that that particular insight. But uh, that was a, a particularly potent, uh, significant moment in in her uh, liberation. And then our final verse was uttered by Anuruddha. Venerable Anuruddha, one of the Arahant disciples of the Buddha, appropriately he gave voice to it immediately after the Parinibbana, the final passing away of the Master. So Anuruddha is speaking here, just talking about the, the Buddha's passing away. The tides of breath all ceased, unstirred, with steadfast heart the sage, the one of vision, inclining to Nibbana, came to peace. Unshaken, Undaunted in the face of pain, like a departing flame, the heart was then released. So this goes back to the imagery of uh, Venerable Tanisra was talking about the 
the going out of a flame, uh, like a departing flame, the, the, uh, the going out of a flame doesn't have that uh, imagery of, of, of death or extinction, but rather the, the release of the heart from entrapment in, in, uh, in the state of, of burning and, and uh, the agitation coming from the, the, uh, the energy of the fuel being turned into, into flame. But um, the going out of the flame, there is that quality of, of uh, release. So Venerable Anuruddha um, uses that same imagery in talking about the, the Buddha's own passing away. Also, the um, the very last reading that we have in the in this book um, also relates to um, the, another passing away of uh, Dabba the Malian. So this is right at the very end of the book. Uh, here we have, <coughs> and uh, Dabba was uh, he was one of these uh, very unusual characters. He became an arahant at the age of seven when his head was being shaved. <laughs> so, speak like you. I was saying yesterday about the the monks who were there listening to the the fire sermon were, or spiritually ripe. Well, Dabba was really really ripe. So there's a few of these um, uh, young novices who, uh, well, but before they even became novices, they were seven years old, becoming a, a young novice, and as their heads were being shaved, they they realized full enlightenment. So, so Dabba the Malian was one of these. Dabba Maliputta was. Uh, one of these that became an arahant uh, uh, right at the very beginning of uh, his life. In, in, the, in the Pali, you never get anyone younger than the age of seven becoming an arahant. That's the lower limit. Which is kind of interesting because that, in terms of child psychology, that's the age at which you are, you're, the mind is capable of abstract thought. And b- b- below that age, you, you can't really create abstractions. Um, uh, that's just one little uh, aside. And also Dabba, he was the he was the guest monk, and so that uh, one of the the Vinaya rules is um, <coughs> that we have is uh, to um, is uh, based on on the the time when Dabba the Malian was a, a guest monk because he had the ability they didn't have they didn't have torches in those in those days a flashlight but Dabba could ignite his finger and so that people monks would deliberately arrive late. So that Dabba would have to show them to their kuti in the forest with this luminous finger, <laughs> and so the Buddha said, "No, no, no, no. Any monk who arrives late deliberately, you know, this is an offence of wrongdoing. You know, just because they, they see Dabba walking through the forest with his glowing <laughs> finger, it's there in the vineyard, so it must be true, right? <laughs> but uh, it's it's so kind of weird that you think, well, probably it was. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, so Dabba had." Uh, a, a very um, uh, uh, sort of a eminent career as a as an enlightened monk, and then the ending of his life was also kind of unusual, insofar as uh, there were certain uh, certain members of the sangha who realised their end was coming, and that they chose to uh, to for their life to end by what they call entering the fire element. So this is the way Ananda passed away as well. So it's a kind of they know that their life force is is uh, is diminishing, and so then they their body dissolves into fire. So in the Tibetan tradition, they have the the they talk about the rainbow body. In the Pali tradition, they don't where their body dissolves into into light, and uh, there there are certain instances of of yogis. And, um, uh, there was a. Um, 
a nun who passed away in Bodh Gaya um, four or five years ago, and all they found was her robes. But uh, she apparently had kind of quote unquote entered the rainbow body in the uh, under the in the um, the Mahabodhi temple in, in Bodh Gaya. <clears throat> but anyway, so you don't have uh, you don't have that the the rainbow body mythology in the Pali, but you do have people entering the fire element. So Daba is supposed to have been one of those, and that uh, <coughs> he um, not only did he, he enter the fire element, but he also floated up into the air before he did this. So you might think this is showing off. But uh, for, for whatever reason, that's some of the, the venerable Arahants chose to depart in that way. That when the, the end of the life was coming, so it's, uh, um, the uh, Dabba uh, knew his end was coming and apparently he flo- floated up into the air to the height of several palm trees and then as he was coming down, <laughs> dissolved into the fire element. So it's a kind of dramatic way to check out. <laughs> Those of you who don't like spiritual drama and think oh nonsense don't be so silly Ajahn Amaro this is just fairy tales well they are fairy tales that fairy tales have their power where they whether Cinderella really existed or not her story is still meaningful and uh, the frog prince and so on so anyhow this is reputedly how Dabba the Malian's life came to an end and after he had passed away in that dramatic fashion then this is what the Buddha said. Just as the born is not known of the, gradually fa- of the gradual fading glow given off by the furnace-heated iron as it's struck with the smith's hammer. So the born means the destination where you can't tell where the, um, when the, the glow of, of uh, like hot metal, when the glow fades, you can't say, well, where does the glow go to? You can't say you can't say where the glow has gone to. It doesn't go to any place, but it's, it's gone. Just as the born is not known of the gradual fading glow given off by the furnace-heated iron as it's struck with the smith's hammer, so there is no pointing to the born of those perfectly released who have crossed the flood of bondage to sense desires and attained unshakable bliss. So, where's Dabba gone? He you can't uh, you can't say uh, um, where doesn't apply. You you can't say where such a one goes. But it's also one of the few instances when there is um, any kind of attribute uh, or, or experiential quality is described at the the at the parinibbana, the the passing away of the body of an enlightened one. And then the Buddha says attained unshakable bliss. So uh, there is a, a that little. Uh, phrase there does give um, uh, a hint that the parinibbana of of the enlightened uh, does lead to um, unshakable bliss, but uh, you can't define what, where, when, <laughs> uh, any of the normal ways of, of framing that uh, quality are, are inaccessible to the thinking mind and to, to the realm of language. So that concludes the uh, the chapter on fire, heat, and coolness. So any questions, comments, thoughts, reflections? Cooled. <laughs> they are all cooled. Evgenia, yeah. Uh,
question to this about fear. Uh, and uh, some financials uh, 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 and finance are uh, too strong. It's really hard to see this uh, as mutual development is not self and all these things. Sometimes it just. It's not self. Well, there's many different approaches. Um, one of the most helpful is to uh, get... If you know that a, an emotion has a, a, a strong presence in the mind, say that your, mi your mind is always criticizing and complaining, like the mind is, is moved towards negativity, or the mind is moved towards fear or, or jealousy. Okay, the mind, that, that's a strong tendency. So you can... You can deliberately sort of research that, or get familiar with that. And, and uh, <clears throat> one of the most helpful kinds of practice with emotion is rather than waiting for it to show up on its own, say the mind must move towards fear or aversion, rather than waiting for that aversion to, to grow up, to sort of arrive on its own, you deliberately invite it in. So one of the practices I often talk about is um, bringing the mind to a, a quiet state, as you know, quiet and peaceful as you can, and then say you want to explore negativity. Uh, so you deliberately think of uh, someone who's annoying. Maybe Caroline really annoys you. See if that's all right, Caroline. <laughs> so you're really, you, know, you, just, you just see Caroline and go, oh, that woman, I can't stand her. You know, just, I'm just inventing it. So... so so you, uh, then you, you realize, okay, that's a strong negative habit there. So then you make your mind as calm as possible, and then just bring in the word Caroline. Or you, some encounter that you have, like you just uh, this morning, you know. <laughs> you don't need a lot of text. You're not, it's not like a whole story. You, you already know the story. What's wrong with that person? Or, so that you're deliberately inviting that in to... to to trigger, to launch that f the feeling. So you're not interested in Caroline, you're interested in aversion. So you bring that in, the thing that you're, or if it's fear or desire, and then uh, by, uh, by igniting that, so triggering that, you're, you set the emotion off. And then the, the difficult part of this practice then is to consciously withdraw the attention from the story or that person or that event and bring it into the body. So, okay, the feeling of aversion. You sort of triggered it by thinking of Caroline, that awful person. <laughs> and then, okay, take it off that memory, that thought, and bring it, okay, now how does this feel? This, this sense of aversion. Or it can be in you know, desire or, or um, jealousy, you know, whatever it might be. And you say, where do I feel that? Okay, that, uh, does, if, just all the things that might be wrong with that person, or all the things that might be desirable about that, that, that person. Let's just put that aside, and let, let's look at where this feeling is. Do I, is it like a steel bar across my shoulders? Is it just heat everywhere? 
Is it feeling kind of rigid or vibrating or is it in your gut or your jaw? So my experience, uh, and for most people, if you look, then most, uh, pretty much every emotion has some kind of physical quality to it. And it's different for everyone. So that you might feel fear in your, you know, your, your teeth clenching and, and the rest of your body doesn't have any kind of reaction. Someone else might feel fear as a sort of a tightening in the belly. Someone else might feel it like a, well, I feel absolutely fine, but there's this knife in my back. <laughs> it's, everything else is great. There's just this knife. It goes in about four inches between my shoulder blades. Ow! And that uh, <clears throat> the, so you're, you're uh, looking at that feeling, just bringing attention to that feeling. So it doesn't matter what the feeling is, whether it's a tension, whether it's heat, whether it's uh, your resentment of your mother, you know, there's a knife in your back. <laughs> but so okay, so I'm not thinking about my mother, I'm not concerned about that, that, that story, but what's this feeling of resentment? How is, how is that in the body? So then you bring attention just to that. And so then this is where the quality of acceptance or loving-kindness is really important, just to, to be open to that feeling. Whatever it is, stiffness or heat or vibration or the, the knife in the back or whatever it might be, just to, to bring attention to that and say, okay, well that's, yeah, it's a feeling like a knife in my back, but is that bearable in this moment? And uh, what's, what's really, I found fascinating, because Ajahn Sumedha used to, to teach this many years ago, and what I found fascinating was that, that the emotions that you found that you were really compelled by or uh, upset by or uh, that you really wanted to get away from or you felt you couldn't stand, when you bring attention right to the felt sense of that emotion, it's not that bad. And I thought, and I remember thinking, I spend so much effort trying to get away from this. <laughs> it's really, why do I put so much time and energy into trying to get away from this? It's really not that bad. It's not as bad as like a migraine or a, a broken limb or something. It's, it's kind of uncomfortable, but it's not even as bad as a toothache. And there's this, this feeling of surprise, like, why do I run away from this so much? Why do I, this, why do I spend so much time and effort trying to not feel this, when in itself, fear is not that bad, or aversion is not that bad, desire is not that kind of wonderful. So then, the, the practice then is just to have, uh, have the attention on that physical sensation, and to cult cultivate the quality of acceptance for it. Just to know it, not to create any story about it, should be there, shouldn't be there, but just to receive it, to know, know it as it is, as a sort of natural uh, uh, quality of experience. <clears throat> and then, uh, after just uh, sustaining that for a few minutes, then you can start to let it go, let the body relax around that. And then, particularly helpful is that uh, using the out-breath, the quality of relaxation and letting go that comes with the exhalation, the out-breath. And so, uh, then, just letting that, the emotion fade, letting the stories go, letting everything calm down and so that, and depending on the intensity of the emotion it can that can take a long time you know if it's your mother you know your resentment for your mother is a 
four inches deep in your back. Like, okay, mum, <laughs> it's been half an hour. Can, I, can we? Can we? Can we have a break here? But it's important. I found, and this was something that Lumpur Sumedho emphasised: is important to stay with it until the thing has really just faded, until you sort of back where you started. So sometimes it it, it takes you know forty five minutes or an hour for for the that the emotion that's been launched to to really fade out. So it's important to just let it go, let it go, let it go, let it go until it's come to a natural conclusion. And then uh, once that the, it has really faded, and then to sustain the the mind on that quality of spaciousness and clarity, where, so where you began, essentially. So in that, you've seen a whole cycle, sort of that emotion's been born, it's arisen, done its thing, it's been accepted, it's lived its life, and it's faded out. So the mind has been fully attentive to and receptive, accepting of that emotion as, a, as a, in a way, an aspect of nature, just like watching the wind moving through the, the branches of a tree. Just, whoo, you know, the, the branches move and the wind has passed. So you're watching that, that wave of, of feeling through the body. and Oh, it's just, it's just a, a pattern of nature, like the wind moving the tree. No more, no less than that. It has its feelings, but it's not anything awful, it's not anything personal, it's not unbearable. Huh. And so that then has been recognized very directly. It's not an idea, it's something that's been really known in the heart. And so it's also when you invite an emotion in, it has a whole different uh, tone to it than when it just shows up on its own. When you see that woman, <laughs> you know, then if it's just landed on its own, then it's like someone's just showed up at your door, you didn't send out an invite. If you invite them in, if you send out an invitation, say, please come and visit, <laughs> I'd like to have a chat, then it changes the dynamic a bit. So it's still the same person, as it were, using that, that simile. But you, you, the dynamic has changed. They didn't just show up unexpectedly. But you, you sent out a, please visit. So you, it's a, uh, it's, there's a bit of a difference in the, the, um, the context. So in a way the heart is a bit more ready to receive rather than something's just showed up, like uh, with with fear, someone that you're afraid of, or a thing that you're desirous of, someone that you're uh, 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 annoyed with, or in love with, or afraid of, or whatever. But, uh, <clears throat> if you, there's a, that inviting in, it sort of changes the landscape a, a, little, a little bit. So that's a very useful way of, of uh, dealing with emotions. Oh, and also, just if, uh, if you say, okay, well, I'll try that, and then you, <laughs> you sort of... Uh, deliberately trigger a particular emotion and then <laughs> you know, you're, okay, you realize, whoa right, that's um, yes, that was interesting <laughs> at least you know that, like wow, that's really explosive that, that, that the mind is really uh, really uh, ready to to, uh, to, sort of, uh, to blow up in, in with that particular thing, so that, that tells you, okay, that's that's something that there's, there's very strong attachment identification with, so that needs to be handled with care. Uh, so that's one one particular that's one method. Imagine uh, 
back on the fear, what if you don't really have an object like, as you said, that woman, but for instance, you're meditating and, well, we have, with, or one of the methods is to focus on breathing. Mm -hmm. What if the breathing is gone and you have no physical sensations, what is your anchor of your meditation? And that is quite scary. How you, when you feel that fear arriving, how would you go? Because basically then you just whoosh and you, you just feel, I mean, if we are, you're used to kind of to, or at least I'm used to uh, focus on breath and when the mm -hmm. breath is gone and your heartbeat is gone and then you suddenly face the fear that you don't understand, you have no anchor, what, what, how should you go after that? Without fear. Well, uh, it's, uh, Ajahn Chah talks about that in a few of his Dhamma talks, that because when the mind gets very concentrated, the breath can get very, very slow. And he says, it, seems, it can seem like you're not breathing at all. He says, you are, you're, but you're like, breathing through your skin. The, the whole system gets very, very quiet. And uh, there's this, this fellow I, I knew in the, the States, um, and he, he was a concert pianist, so he had really, really good samadhi. And uh, he was um, so you know for musicians have to have really good concentration. So he could uh, <clears throat> he was demonstrating these um, Chopin etudes where he's like these sort of weird exercises that Chopin invented, where you have like five four time going with one hand and seven eight going with the other hand, and then they switch over in the middle of a, a bar. <laughs> he says you've got to be really focused for that. So anyway, he said uh, he was realizing that his breath was getting really very, very quiet. And so he decided, being a, an experimental type, he said, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll see how... Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll sit for an hour, and uh, once, my, once my mind is concentrated, I'll sit for an hour and see actually how slow the breath really is. And so <coughs> he, um, he sort of set his little clock, and, um, and he said... Um, when, uh, I hadn't realized but, uh, how, how slow the breath was going, but once my mind was really focused, and I said, okay, let's begin the hour, he said, I was actually halfway through an in-breath when the hour was up. Like he hadn't even finished one in-breath during a, a, an hour. So he said, oh, right, that's why it felt slow. <laughs> <laughs> so the... Uh, in that kind of in, in situation, that uh, when the mind says, "Oh, I'm not breathing. I'm not breathing. I'm going to die," or let's say, "Well, that's just the, the the habit of the thinking mind that's that's uh, used to the sign of the breath." But you are still alive. You Ajahn Chah says you're breathing through your skin, so you can take it on trust that you that you're still uh, alive. And that when the mind, the whole system gets very very quiet, then the, the need for for oxygen, the need for for metabolic energy gets gets much 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 less. It's also why during a meditation retreat, often you find you need far less food. It's not just a matter of not having so much exercise, but the the body is not needing so much material fuel to to kind of keep itself going. So that naturally the appetite just falls away, and the the body knows how much food it really needs, and you go. Uh, and then you, because you, it can during a retreat time, it can be like you, the meal. You think, I'm really hungry, and then you, you're sort of about fifteen mouthfuls into your food. You go, I'm full. 
my bowl is, is not empty. <laughs> Half my food is still there. How can I be full? But then your body knows how much food it really needs. And so, okay, that's, I was hungry, but now that's, that's, that's enough. That's all I needed. So it's helpful just to trust the, the wisdom of the body. It has its own intelligence. And uh, to recognize, okay, well, it doesn't seem to be any breathing needed right now. So uh, I found, not quite as extreme as the, the pianist guy, but <laughs> I, I also noticed that um, doing Anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing, particularly in long uh, times of, of retreat, that uh, I would, uh, that I found it really difficult to use the breath because you get to the end of a breath and you'd think, No, there was an exhalation, but there's no inhalation happening. Kind of. Oh, there's one. Okay, this is beginning again. <laughs> so you have these long gaps between the end of one breath and the beginning of the next one. So I just started um, using the the nada sound, the inner inner sound, because that's continuous, whether the breath is there or not. So uh, if I wanted a concentration object, I just sort of kind of gave up on the breath because it kept stopping. <laughs> and just to use the, uh, the, the inner listening as a, a, a basic practice. So I, I tend to use that far more than, than, than the breath myself. Because that's, that, uh, that actually gets stronger. The quieter the mind gets, the, str- the stronger and more vivid that becomes. So that's a... Um, you could just park the the breath altogether and just use that uh, the inner sound. And on that note, we'll leave it there for today, since it's already ten past seven.